Well, good morning, everybody. Always feel like the bad guy breaking up all the fellowship in the morning. But uh, we want to press on to God's Word. So um, if you could just get comfortable in your seats. Um, I'd love to have you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. We've, uh, our pastor Milton is away today. He sends his greetings. He's at a conference in San Diego, I believe. Um, and uh, he'll be back this next week. We've been going through a series in Romans. Um, but today we're actually going to depart from that. We're going to go into the Old Testament, uh, which is one of my favorite things to do, is go to the Old Testament. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel. As a church body, we've been reading through 1 Samuel over the summer. And I've really been enjoying that as a household uh, in our home. And so I thought uh, many of you are already done with that reading. Some of you might be behind a little bit, but uh, most of you probably finished for Samuel. I just want to preach one sermon that might encapsulate uh, one of the most important things that I, I've gathered from First Samuel, and I hope that you will as well. So let's pray for our time together, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, I give you thanks for this morning. I thank you thanks for your people, your precious people for whom you died. And we give you thanks, Lord, that we can be gathered together here this morning in your name. Because of what you have done on the cross, we want to see you glorified and lifted up, Lord. And as we've sung this morning, you are the King of glory. You are our great and awesome King. And this morning, Lord, I pray that that would be something that would resonate in our hearts, that we would leave here people who are committed to you as our King and as our God. Only you can do that kind of work in our hearts, Lord. So I pray that you would do that through your word, through your spirit this morning. For your glory, I pray. Amen. Well, First Samuel chapter 12. Um, I wanted to start off by showing you a picture. Uh, this is me and my wife, Jennifer. We're going to be celebrating 12 years this year of marriage. Give it up. Um, this is us at one of our last weddings. And I want to talk a little bit about weddings. I love going to weddings for one main reason. That's to be with her. Uh, and actually, I love going to weddings because of what happens between she and I when, we, when we're actually there. I, don't get me wrong, I love the blessing of seeing two people get married and God do an amazing thing of uh, bringing them together. I love the free food. I love getting dressed up. I love seeing family and friends. I love all of that. But I, I have to be honest, selfish, the one reason I love going to, to weddings is because something amazing happens every time I go to a wedding with my wife. I am always reminded of just the gift that she is to me, that God has given to me and this woman. I'm, I'm just reminded of what a good friend and an encouragement and just, just partner she is to me. I'm reminded of just how faithful she's been. I've, I'm reminded of our 12 years and just what we've gone through, all the things that we've tasted, the trials, the joys, um, just the growing pains of marriage and all the blessings that have come with that, but I'm also reminded of how I've let my wife down. I'm reminded of how I've failed to be the husband that I ought to be. I'm reminded of my sin and my unfaithfulness to her. I'm reminded of how I failed to lead her the way that Christ has loved and led me. And I'm humbled by my sin at weddings. But I'm also encouraged anew and afresh every time I'm at a wedding with my wife. Because I'm invigorated. I hear vows being made. I remember the vows that she and I wrote out and, and proclaimed to one another. And I am 
I'm resolved and my commitment to my wife is renewed every time I leave a wedding. And I'm just so excited and ready to pursue her and enjoy her and experience all the blessings of loving her um, in, 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 the, in this marriage that God's designed. And I think more than anything, I'm reminded of perhaps the greatest truth that has ministered to me in marriage, and that's this, that God has brought us together. That she and I being married is not about just two people that made this decision, but God from eternity past having brought us together, having said, Jennifer, there's no other man on the planet that's, that's better suited for you than this this man, Carlos. And Carlos, there's no other woman on the planet that's better for you and more suited for you than Jennifer. And I, from eternity past, before I even made you, I already joined you together. I, I knew that this was what it would be. You two together. And that you two together would glorify me better together than apart. And I'm encouraged by these realities. And so I love weddings. I thank God for weddings. I wish I could go to a wedding every day for that reason. And this morning... What you and I need is a wedding. What you and I need is something that will help us to see God and how faithful He is, how awesome He is, and the fact that we've been joined together with Him as His people, that we are in a covenant relationship with Him. And we need to be renewed in our covenant commitment to our God, our great King. And so this is where we are going to go this morning in 1 Samuel 12 because this is Samuel's goal this morning and I trust that as he's doing this with Israel that he will God's word will be piercing us and encouraging us and renewing our love for the Lord if you want to give a title to the message it's Behold Our King Behold Our King and um, I want to begin uh, by reading and I want to just kind of set the stage uh, 1, Samuel tw- 1 Samuel 8 to 12 is the hinge point For this book, it's the hinge because when we begin this book, God is king over Israel. It's a theocracy. He's ruling them. Yes, he has servants. He's had servants all the whole time. Moses, Aaron and the judges and uh, people like that. But God is the king. And when we come to 1 Samuel 8, something terrible goes wrong. The people ask for another king. And they reject the king that has been over them since the beginning Something, when we get to these passages, 8 through 12, chapters 8 through 12, something has gone terribly wrong. And Samuel needs to speak to this. He needs to remind the people of their God, how awesome he is, and that he is their king alone. And that they need to renew their commitment to this one. I want to actually begin in, at the end of chapter 11. If you would, if you turn in your Bible there to 1 Samuel 11, and notice verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. You see, the people had a purpose in going to Gilgal and that was to exalt, to celebrate, to finally kind of and the inauguration ceremony of Saul as their king. But notice what Samuel's goal was in going to Gilgal. That's not what his goal was. He said, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. And this word for renew means to restore, to lift back up, to fix what's gone wrong. There's something that needs to be restored. There's something that needs to be renewed. And it's not the kingdom of God because that's always been there and it always will be. 
What had to be renewed was the people's understanding of that kingdom and their allegiance to the king of that kingdom. Samuel was going there to Gilgal with one purpose, and that was to address the people. And that's what chapter 12 is. It's just Saul and Samuel just just judging, really, judging the people. Exalt, I mean, exhorting them and rebuking them and calling them to covenant commitment, to covenant renewal. And so we're going to look at all of chapter 12. Lord willing, we'll have the time to do that. And I want to show you five truths about God, our King, from these verses that I pray by His grace will cause us to renew our covenant commitment to Him. All of us need moments like this. In fact, this isn't the only moment in Israel's history. At the end of uh, Joshua's life in Judges 24, there was this kind of calling the people back. There's always been this calling the people back to covenant, commitment, and love for their king and their God. So this is what Samuel is doing. The people, on the other hand, they, they, they were celebrating Saul. They were excited about their new king, the one whom they had made king in place of Yahweh. But Samuel had a different goal. And he begins by saying, in, in, verse, uh, in verse 12 it says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and I have made you a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. I did what you wanted. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with me, and I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing, you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Before Samuel begins to judge the people, he lets them, he lets them judge him. See, Samuel was getting very old among the people, not just in age, but they kind of have said, they, they were setting him aside. He was getting old about to die. His sons weren't walking in the ways of the Lord. And now they had this new guy, this new hope, this hope for change, Saul. And Samuel says, I still have something to say to you. I still have a ministry here. I have a purpose here. And I'm going to speak to you. But go ahead and judge me first. And they had nothing that they could find against him. And then he begins in verse 7. And here's where the crux of the, of the, of the passages in verses 7 and following. He says, now therefore, stand still that I may plead with you. And the, that word plead really means to judge. Stand still that I may judge you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers whom Jacob went into uh, he says when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed him then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in, in this place but they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hands of Sisera commander of the army of Hatsor and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab and they fought against them and then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. 
when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set him over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. There's two truths in these first, these first verses, verses 7 to 15. Two truths that we're going to look at. The first one is this, that God is and always has been and always will be our only king. Samuel needs the people to understand this reality. God is, he always has been, and he always will be our only king. And we, we understand this from the beginning. In fact, this is what Samuel begins to do. He begins to rehearse their history. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed him, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses. And go, he, he begins to rehearse this redemptive history, that, this unique divine history that Israel has. They are so unique. That's because every other nation had a king, every other nation had a ruler, but Israel was so different in that God, the God of the universe was their king, was their ruler, was their leader. They were a theocracy where God was their king. He delivered them out of Egypt where that nation was birthed and where they multiplied. And and through, through Moses and Aaron, his servants, he led the people out and into safety and into the land. It's amazing what Moses says. He knows, the people know that God was king early on. Even right after the, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the next very next chapter, Exodus 15, the song of Moses, Exodus 15, 18. We sang it this morning. The Lord, you shall reign forever and ever. The Lord, Yahweh, shall reign forever and ever. That was their, that was their song. That was their understanding that they would have a king who would be over them forever. It was Yahweh. It was the Lord himself. Even in Exodus 19, as they stand at the foot of Sinai and the Lord is making a covenant with them to be their God and them to be his people, he says, and you shall be to me, Exodus 19:6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a set-apart nation. You'll be different than all the other people in the world because I will be your king and you will be my people. So that when we get to the Ten Commandments, the very next chapter in Exodus 20, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And what Samuel does here is he's reminding the people of who their king is, how faithful and good and powerful and sovereign and mighty he is. And that he is, and only he, is the king. There is to be no other, no other. Even all of these servants, Moses, and Aaron, and Jerubal, and Barak, and Jephthah, even Samuel, he puts his own name in this list. These were only servants. God raised them up, and in his time he took them away. But God is the one who is, has been, and always will be their king. And this should be an encouragement to you and I, whether it's in the local church, or whether it's in our nation, at election time, it doesn't matter. Our king is not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He is Yahweh. And we, even though we have pastors and elders, this church is in good hands because its shepherd, its leader, its king is Yahweh. And that's what we need to realize. That's what the people of Israel need to realize. They had to have this history rehearsed with them. And Samuel does that. He shows them, you cried out 
Your fathers cried out, and the Lord raised up these men, Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers out and made them dwell in this place. And even when you forgot God, and he sold you into them, into the hands of Sisera, as, as punishment and as, as discipline to his children, then you cried out again, and the Lord delivered you. He raised up these men and delivered you, verse 11, out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. God is our only ruler. He's our only deliverer. He's our only sustainer. He's our only hope. God is a king like no other. Not only is he the only king, the only deliverer, the only savior, the only sovereign ruler, but there is no other king like him. Only he is this faithful and gracious and merciful and loving and powerful. And he is an enduring king. He shall reign forever and ever. Even, even now that the people have a king, God is still their king. He says in verse 14, And if you, will hear, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well with you. Even though you have a king, you're still to follow the Lord, me, God says. You will follow me and, and you will serve me and it will be well with you. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Because God is saying, I am still king and I will always be your only king. I think this first point, we'd all agree intellectually with our minds that this is true. The problem is that volitionally in our hearts, we don't live this out. Often we don't live as if this is really true, that God is and always will be our only king. And as we look through the verses again, there's a second truth that we see in what Samuel is telling to the people in this history that he's recounting to them. Notice these key words, forgotten, forsaken. What Samuel is reminding the people is that even though God is and always will be our only king, he is a forgotten and a forsaken king. From Egypt all the way through their history, Israel consistently lived lives that failed to to reflect the reality that God was their king. Even though Yahweh alone was their king, even though he was such an amazing king, even though he's an enduring king. You know, when we, this is the time period of the judges. Samuel's still judging the people. We're in the time period of the judges here when we get to this passage and we're just beginning to have Israel's first king come onto the scene. But I, I'm just fascinated. If you turn back to Judges 21-25, the last words... In, in that passage, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I think the writer is obviously commenting from a time period when he's writing where people were living and reading this and, and they were under a king. But I don't think it's just simply stating the obvious. Hey, this was the time period before the kings that you guys know so well. I think there's something more being said here. I think what the writer of Judges is saying, is he's saying, there was no king in Israel, not even Yahweh was king, was regarded as king, so that everybody did whatever they wanted to do. And this is the pattern. This is the pattern of Israel. This is the pattern of us in our sinfulness and in our flesh, that we do whatever we want and we do not regard God as king. He's a forgotten and forsaken king. And notice there's also not, not just this pattern throughout Israel's history that Samuel's recounting here, but there's a progression. There's a progression. Notice first what they do. Notice what they, what they first do. They forgot 
the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. Notice verse 9. But they forgot the Lord. Even though he had just brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Verse, very next verse, verse 9. But they forgot their Lord. See, this is where it begins. We, we, um, we, we taste and we witness and we experience all the goodness of God toward us, but we so easily forget. What Samuel is cluing us into here is our very own sin nature that because of our flesh, because of our weakness, we are so prone to forget what Joe said earlier this morning. We are prone to amnesia, to divine amnesia. We forget that there is a God, that He's been so good to us. We don't naturally remember the Lord. And, and all over the law, all over Deuteronomy, Moses is warning the people. He's saying, take care lest you forget. Take care lest you forget. Take care lest you forget. Search that and you'll find it several places. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all these good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. All over the the, the law, all over Deuteronomy, be careful lest you forget. Be diligent. That's what we need to do. We have to, we have to be diligent. We have to be on guard. We have to be constantly reminding ourselves and reminding each other lest we forget our King and how great and awesome He is. And for us on this side of the cross, we need to rehearse gospel realities that show us who God is and what He's done, who we were, what we've become. All of these realities that we find in the gospel and God's Word. We need to constantly be reminded. So they forgot. They forgot. But they forgot the Lord their God. He sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hotzor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And this is the second thing. This is the second phase or the, pro- the progression. We go from forgetting to forsaking and serving other gods. That word for forsake means to abandon, to leave behind, to break covenant with. We forsake the Lord. We we leave Him aside because we haven't been fixed on Him and our gaze on Him and celebrating who He is and what He's done, who we are and what we've become. We, We turn so quickly, so easily to other things and we begin to forsake God. We break our covenant commitment and relationship with Him and we pursue other things. And that word to serve other gods doesn't mean just doing errands for them or burning or offering you know, sacrifices to them. That word serve in the religious sense, in the spiritual sense, means to exalt, to honor, to worship, to present yourself to. When you're serving something else other than God, you're giving all of yourself to that thing. You're saying, here I am, all of me for you. Whether it's career, whether it's relationships, whether it's fame or people's opinion of you, whether it's lust, pornography, whatever we're pursuing, education, status, money, material things, 
when we're pursuing those things, we're serving those things, we're, we've forsaken the Lord. What Samuel is describing here, what the people confess with their very own mouth in their history, more than once, is that they had committed adultery against the Lord. They had gone off with another and into a relationship with another, giving themselves fully. In fact, in Deuteronomy, amazing stuff. In Deuteronomy 31.16, Moses, he, he, he alludes to all this. The Lord tells him what's going to happen. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. See, this, is, this, is, this didn't catch the Lord off guard. He knew that this was going to happen. He knew that we would forget him. And we would so quickly forsake him and serve other gods. And then notice the next progression, verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. See, this is where we get to the tricky question about what happened here. They asked for a king. I thought that was for good reasons. What happened? Well, let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 8 because that's where it happened. And we get divine commentary both in chapter 12 and verse 8, but I, uh, chapter 8. But I want to read chapter 8 real quick. Because on the, on the surface, it appears that nothing actually was that bad at first. Notice chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the first one was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. And they took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. See, sin often presents itself as good and noble reasons. Paul Tripp says, sin lives in a costume. That's why it's so hard to recognize. The fact that sin looks so good is one of the things that makes it so bad. In order for it to do its evil work, it must present itself as something that is anything but evil. Life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. Impatient yelling wears the mask of a zeal for truth. Lust masquerades as a love for beauty. Gossip does its evil work by living in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up as a servant's heart. The pride of always being right masquerades as a love for biblical wisdom. Evil simply doesn't present itself as evil, which is, which is part of its draw. And here we see what might be good and noble reasons. You're getting old, Samuel. Your, your sons don't walk in the way, your ways anymore. Give us a king. We need someone to lead us into the next phase of life as a nation. Let's see, we have the divine commentary here that what's really going on is not just a concern about who will lead them and the fact that his sons, Samuel's sons don't walk in the right way. No, the real concern 
is that they are ultimately looking for someone else to be their deliverer. They're putting their trust in someone else. They're wanting someone else like the rest of the world. Give us a a king like all the other nations. And it's interesting when we look at all the other nations, because in the ancient Near East, guess what the king was in in, in Egypt and in Moab and all these other places? He was God incarnate. He was the divine one who led the people. That's what the people were asking for. Give us another God. Give us someone we can put all of our trust in. And this is crazy that this is happening in chapter 7, I mean in 8, because just one chapter before that, they're gathered at Mizpah, they're repenting over sin, and the Philistines find out that they're there and they start coming to attack them. And all the people of Israel said in verse verse 8 of chapter 7, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, Samuel, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel did that. He took a burnt offering, he sacrificed it. Um... And, and all of a sudden it says, and Samuel was offering up the burnt offering and the Philistines drew near to attack. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were routed before Israel and the men of Israel went after them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. Eben ha etzer. The stone that is our help. God, our refuge, our rock who helped us. And he said, till now... Up till this day even, the Lord has helped us. So here, just to explain what I think happened, here, you're in Israel, Philistines are on the west, the Ammonites are on the east, God delivers the people from the Philistines in this amazing Ebenezer story, thunder and lightning, scattering the people, the, the divine army, the, the, God of, the, God of, um, the God of hosts comes down and, and, and and defeats the Philistines for the people. They set up a rock and say, the God has up until this day delivered us. And then it says, back in chapter 12, when you saw that Nahash the Ammonite came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. See, in chapter 8, something was already going on on the east side. Well, we don't get to Nahash until 11, but he was already there. It was kind of a cold war arms race. He was amassing his chariots and his horses and all these things in the background, and the people were freaking out. Hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your husbands, because Nahash is about to kill everybody, right? That's what was about to happen. No, they said, they said, no, but a king shall reign over us. They said, we, we, we're, we've, just, we've already forgotten one chapter over what you did for the, against the Philistines. We're looking at Nahash, this one who is raising up, he's, he's becoming a major threat. We need a king, we need a commander-in-chief who will guard us against this one. Instead of looking at the Lord, they rejected him and asking for another. And some people say, what about Deuteronomy 17? We don't have time to go there, but it says in there, when you get to the land and you ask for a king, you shall surely appoint one from among your brothers. And people say, see, it wasn't wrong that they asked for a king. I, think, I, I beg to differ. I think it was wrong. And I think what you have in Deuteronomy is just law that says, when you do this, and it's going to be sinful that you did. Just like when Moses in, in, in Deuteronomy 24, you're going to get divorced, fine. You better, you better do it right. But you, it's because of your hardness of heart that I have to write this law. And in Deuteronomy 17, there's a law that says, when you ask for a king, and it's going to be wicked and sinful that you do, but when you do it, you better find someone from your own people. You better not get a king from outside the other nations. But there was no excuse for this. There was no excuse. This was wicked and wrong. And we have the divine commentary that says that God was the one ultimately who was the rejected one. And the people chose another. He became the forgotten and the forsaken king. 
And I think the point here is that that we're realizing with this ongoing story and pattern of Israel and even in our own lives is that unless God does something, unless he shows up in a divine and miraculous and supernatural way, we can't, we can't live lives that reflect that he's our king. We can't live covenant committed lives to this one. God has to come in somehow and do something here. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 12 in the next verse in verse 16. Notice verse 16. Now, therefore, here Samuel continues to speak to the people. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain. Remember chapter seven? That day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God. Pray for us. For we have, that, we not, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. It's here in this miraculous, amazing supernatural event that we realize truth number three. That God is the one who supernaturally reveals himself as king. God's got to be the one to show up in our lives. He's got to be the one to do something to change our hearts, to open us up to who he is and put himself on display. And let me tell you, until God does that in our lives, until we get a vision for who God is and how glorious and mighty and amazing he is, we will not regard him as the king that he is. We will not live lives that reflect his rule over us. But God is the one, and He alone is the one who can reveal Himself. And in doing that, expose our wickedness in our hearts. And at the same time, produce conviction and a fear of Him. And that's exactly what God does. He says, this is it not the wheat harvest? This is, one commentator said, this is like getting, you know, six inches of snow in Miami in the summer. You know, this, was, this was the wheat harvest. This was the time where it doesn't rain in Israel. And God says, I'm going to rain and thunder and do something amazing meteorologically so you know that this is not some kind of freak storm. This is me showing up in a mighty way. And this was more than just a storm. This was something that God did supernaturally that brought a heart conviction and an opening of the eyes. Notice what he says. See this great, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. God is the one who supernaturally revealed himself there. And in, in putting himself on display, he put his power on display, he put his sovereignty on display, he put his rule on display, he put his perfect faithfulness on display so that the people would realize, what, what have we done against this Holy One, this perfect one? He put his anger and his wrath and his displeasure and his pain even on display so that we would see our sin for what it is, total, all-out adultery and wickedness. You might be asking, man, I need that. I need that kind of thing. Where can I get that kind of storm? I think there's only one place for us to look, and that's at the cross. It's at the cross that we see this divine storm, this divine revealing of God as King. It's there that we see the Holy One, the Perfect One, the Faithful One, the one who has been faithful to the covenant, the King of Kings, 
sovereign one who's allowing himself to be crucified because he's faithful to his covenant and to his people and loves them. It's there that we see God's anger and displeasure and his pain and in the blood and in the screams and in the crushing of the Son of God, this King of kings, this King of glory. It's there that we see how wicked and foolish we are in going after such inconsequential things in this life and rejecting God to go after and serve and whore ourselves away to things that don't matter. Rejecting, ultimately rejecting the one who loves us and who has been such a good and faithful king. Notice the passage also. How do, we, how do you get something like you, you might look at the cross and just like people saw the thunderstorm, that doesn't guarantee anything. But notice what happened. It was prayer. It was prayer that did this. Notice what he says. So Samuel called upon the Lord. You see, this is what we need to be praying for every day, that God would do this kind of revealing, a revealing of himself and his glory, the revealing and exposing of our own sin and wickedness. And we need to be praying, praying like Samuel prayed for the people, praying for ourselves daily, praying for one another. My prayer for you, for you should be that you will see God's glory every single morning. That you'll have that wedding experience and that you'll see your own sin and unfaithfulness, but that you'll want to pursue him. You'll want to pursue him. So it's God that reveals himself as king in a profound way here. And until we see him this way, we will not serve him as king. But there's hope for us. Truth number four, God is a gracious and a glorious king to be pursued. He is a gracious and a glorious king to be pursued. Notice the passage as it goes on. I'm going to reread 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sin this evil to ask for ourselves as a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. Said just a moment ago, they feared the Lord. Yes, have a fear of the Lord, but don't be afraid. True fear of the Lord doesn't drive us away from God. It drives us toward Him. And Samuel says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty Samuel says to the people, your God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. He is a gracious king. He's a gracious king. The people saw this event, this this supernatural event, and they literally thought they were going to die that day. They thought they were going to die. In fact, we have this accounts like this all over the scriptures. People see the glory of God. They they come face to face with the presence and the the glorious manifestation of God himself, and they fall like dead men, and they think they're going to be dead in a matter of moments, hours, whatever it is. These people fully, I really believe they fully thought, we're going to die right now unless someone intercedes for us. Samuel says, don't be afraid. Just don't turn aside. Do, just only don't turn aside from following the Lord. Words, get up and pursue the Lord. See that His grace is there for you to embrace and receive and it's amazing on this side of the cross, we have, we have someone interceding for us. The people cried out to Samuel to intercede for them. But on this side of the cross, we have a perfect prophet, and priest, who intercedes for us daily, through whom we can come to the Lord when we've sinned, find grace from our King. God is a God of second chances. He's not a God that we need to run away from, but that we need to run toward. Our fear of God should drive us toward Him. 
toward our God. This is what God desires. Samuel is just giving expression to what God wants for us. He wants us to not turn aside, but to come running into his embrace, running after him, pursuing him, seeing him as not only a gracious God, but a glorious God and king, a glorious king. Notice what he says. He says, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. I think what Samuel is saying here is he's saying, remember, remember that and realize that God is the only one whom you can give all of your heart to and find full and lasting and eternal satisfaction in. If you give your heart to anything else, it cannot satisfy. You cannot serve it with all your heart in the sense that it cannot bring true blessing and satisfaction and joy and purpose. What, what Samuel is reminding the people of is the very thing they were made to do. He's saying, do what you were designed to do. God made you in His image as people who would come after Him, who would need Him, who would long for Him, and who would find all of their purpose and satisfaction and identity and joy and everything inside of Him. And so he says, follow after the Lord and serve Him. Remember that word serve. Not just tithe and spend the rest of the week the way you want. Not, not just do whatever. No, he's saying, give all of yourself away to this one. Don't be afraid. I remember when I first got married, I... I, I saw it more as like, especially after being married, I, I kind of backpedaled and I got overwhelmed about marriage. It, it seemed like a trap and, and, uh, and it was, there was moments of, of heaviness in our first few mar- years of marriage. I think that was, that's what makes these days so much more sweeter is what we've gone through, Jennifer and I. But it's almost like we're afraid. I think even young people today, afraid to make that commitment, afraid to commit to something. It's like, stop being afraid to commit and give all of yourself away to Yahweh. That's where you're going to find true, eternal, lasting life and pleasure and joy and fulfillment inside of him and I think he's taught me that even in my own marriage that as I've given myself to my wife and loved her in covenant faithfulness and sought to do that that there is there's there's so much joy and fullness there and it's the same thing with the Lord even more so that's just a picture of our true marriage to the one who is everything we're to serve him give away all of yourself enslave yourself to the one who is the only one who can set you free and notice he says in So do not turn aside from following Him. Pursue Him. Run toward the Lord. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit. That word empty, the same thing in in Genesis. Where there's empty and void. These things are nothing. They cannot profit or deliver. There's no value in them. There's no treasure. Only God is your treasure. There's no profit, nor can they deliver. Nothing else can be our Savior. Nothing else can satisfy us. Nothing else can deliver us from ourselves. Only God can be our Redeemer and our Savior. And Samuel's saying, do not go after these things. Stop turning aside, but follow the Lord. He is a gracious and a glorious king to be pursued. And our last point, point number five, truth number five, God is a faithful covenant-keeping king. God is a faithful covenant-keeping king. Notice the rest of the verses. For the Lord will not forsake his people, verse 22, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. Notice verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He has a people 
that, that are unfaithful to him, that have broken the covenant with him numerous times. But this covenant keeping God, this faithful, this faithful king will never break covenant. He will never forsake his people. And what a, what a, an amazing truth. Even the covenant name of Yahweh, Exodus 3.14, I am the God who will be there. Yahweh, his covenant name. I am the God who will be there forever. And I won't leave you. You've left me. You've sinned against me. But I will remain faithful to you. What a, what a, what a hope that we have in this king. That he's been so good to us, so faithful to us, and he will continue to do that. And it says here in verse 22, he, is, he will not forsake his people for his own namesake. See, there's the part about being true to his covenant. The whole idea of covenant is God on display, his glory on display. See, the covenant that goes back to Abraham was, I will bless you, I will make you a great nation, I will bring blessing through this people in the form of Christ. I will be true to this covenant. I will do amazing things that ultimately bring me all the glory. No one else will get the glory but me. And God says, I will not forsake you. It's not because of who you are that I'm doing this. It's because of who I am. And I will get glory from this. Deuteronomy 7 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest, the least of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God says, I didn't, I'm not doing this because of who you are. I'm not doing this because of anything that you've done. I'm doing this for my glory and you can rest in that and I will get glory from that. In fact, here's one of the most amazing things about this whole story, this whole chapter and even the rest of redemptive history. It's what God's done time and time again. We sinned. We meant something for evil, but God meant it for our good and for his eternal glory. These people should have never asked for a king. They should have never had a king. God should have been their theocratic ruler for all of time. And yet God, in his amazing sovereignty and wisdom and divine plan, allowed for there to be the establishment of a monarchy through sinful, wicked acts. So that there would be king after king after king after king. And part of it was to teach the people that you're never going to find in any of these men anything you're looking for. They will all fail. Even the good ones won't bring down the high places. There's always going to be something with them. But because I'm a covenant-keeping God, because I'm a faithful king, guess what? There's going to be one, one day, born in Bethlehem, who will be the king of kings. And I will bring my rule full circle and I will rule you in a messianic way on the throne of David perfectly for my glory and for your eternal good. And that's the amazing thing about this chapter. That's the amazing thing about our God, the King, is that he's a faithful, covenant-keeping king. And what we meant for evil, what these people did in rejecting and forsaking and forgetting God, God says, I'll use all of that. I'm going to keep the covenant. And I'm going to bring about the one who will ultimately be your king the way it ought to have been from the very beginning. Notice the rest of the passage. We've got to end. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you and I will instruct you in the good way, the right way. Samuel 
He said, I will pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and right way. And we have one who's better than Samuel. We have Christ who was the answer to this, this whole thing, the fulfillment, the great King of Kings. And he's the one who prays and intercedes for us. He's the one who instructs us in the good and right way. And he's the one who makes 20, verse 24 possible. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. See, we should take hope because of the God who is a covenant-keeping King. We have hope to live this out. We can live this out in his power and in his strength because of what he's done, because he's kept the covenant. He has now enabled us through His Spirit, by His Word, by His power, for His glory, to be able to do this, to fear Him and to serve Him faithfully with all of our being. And He says, the key to do that, remember your covenant keeping God. For consider what great things He has done. Look to the one who's kept the covenant. Look to the one who's done it all. Look to the one who gets all the glory for it all. And remember Him Look to him. Rehearse these gospel realities. Rehearse what your God has done. That will, that will, that will transform you to, to follow after, to fear him and to serve him with all your heart. And then he ends with a warning. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. If you don't follow the true king, and whatever your king is, whatever you put your hope in, whatever you're pursuing in this life, whatever you're living for that is not the Lord, God says he'll take you in that thing and he'll, he will do away with you. You will be swept away. See, there's no other choice but to follow the Lord. And who would want any other thing than this? I think he gave this warning because there were many people in Israel who did not know the Lord, who weren't really truly his people. They were Israelites, but they weren't true Israel. And there may be people here this morning who know, they go to church, you guys go to church, you know the gospel, but you are not. God is not your king. You have other kings. You have other things you're living for and worshiping and serving, giving all of yourself to. God says, don't do that. Don't do that. Stop turning aside. Follow after me. Fear me and serve me with all of your heart. Let's pray that we can do that by his grace and power and strength. Pray with me. Father, we give you thanks for who you are. You are our king. You always have and always will be. And even though you're the forgotten, forsaken king, you have manifested and revealed yourself as king. And you've shown us how gracious and glorious you are and that we have been made to pursue you and nothing else because nothing else can profit or deliver us. And we praise you, Lord, that you are the one who keeps covenant. You are the faithful king who's provided our salvation, and enabled us to live lives that bring you glory. And that's what we long to do, Lord. Renew our commitment to you this morning. As we enter into a new season of ministry, help us to live with you as our king. Help us to minister to one another with you as our king. Help us to lead our families and love those around us because we want to do that for our king. Lord, we pray that you be glorified. Even in our giving right now, we give everything to you because you have given everything to us. We trust you, Lord. We want to see you glorified and lifted up. We pray all of this in your precious name. Amen.